All right, you guys want to record an episode and then another episode? Yes. Yeah. We should we should probably get moving. We got a lot to do tonight. It's yeah. true. All right, here we go. And you're going to drag on. I know it. I'm going to try not to. <laughs> Don't bring me down. <laughs> Don't bring me down. <laughs> that was beautiful, Peter. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm Sean Hartman, the psychologically ultimate co-host. I am Jeremy Ruggles, Parker Brothers authorized rehabilitator, cleaner, and spiritual recharger of Ouija boards. Hmm. Boy, oh boy. Well, I... I'm Peter Cook, co-founder of the Environmental Protection Agency. Wait, what? Interesting. <laughs> I did not know that about you, Peter. Yep. You'd think that would have come up by now. Little known Peter Cook fact. I co-founded it with someone else you may or may not have heard of. Richard Nixon. <laughs> Tricky dicky. Huh. Would you say that... Uh, there are multiple elements of foreshadowing in your <laughs> your title this week. One might say that, Sean. One might say that. Well, I can't wait to continue with this episode and see how it relates. All right. So I brought Miley Cyrus this week. <laughs> no, you did we can't not. Stop. It's my week. Back off. This is my time to shine. Fine. What'd you bring? I brought a record that I would be, I would consider to be a part of a movement that is a sort of spiritual sequel to Exotica and the Martin Denny episode that I did a few weeks back. It also holds the distinction of being on Lester Bang's top 10 list of the most ridiculous records of the seventies. This week, we're going to talk about 20th century visionary polymath Irv Teibel and his psychoacoustic passion project. The Environment series. I brought Environments 2. I feel like I need to be a scientist to understand whatever you just said. <laughs> well, a pseudoscientist at the very least. <laughs> let's uh let's just kick it let's just kick yeah. it off right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna play the very beginning of side two. This is Dawn at New Hope, Pennsylvania, June 1969. Uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, I think is like a half an hour away from my current location of Philadelphia, by the way. Here we go. Yeah, it's very close. Crank it up.
You know, this is making a lot of things this week click for me. Sean's been oh. saying all week that I need to listen to the soundtrack of my life. And then he's trying to sell me multivitamins. <laughs> and it's all adding up now. I've also got this new patent pending snake oil that I think could uh, cure your impending baldness. Yes. So you're welcome. Thank you. My gift to humanity. Sean's getting real new age on us here. Oh, I'm going to get so friggin' new age. You guys have no idea. All right. So I want to know what your guys' first impressions of this record are. Either your first impression from hearing it now or what your first impressions might have been when you were first exposed to the environment series. Jeremy? I, I don't know how to talk about this without like really going in to some major parts of it. But it's, I think, to the modern ear where we are able to record everything everywhere all the time, whatever like revolutionary aspects of it in its time, I feel like don't translate nowadays. Mm -hmm. Well, I would agree with that. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Uh, Peter, first impressions. I really enjoy recorded material that allows the listener to pause from, you know, from our very frantic and hectic society that we live in. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a 50 plus year old record at this point. So the world as most people live in, it probably seemed a real hustle and bustle back then. And it's even more so more crowded with information and, and sound now. And these seem by design allowing the listener, they allow the listener to step outside of that. You know, if, if they're able, if you could, you know, if you live in the city and listen to an album like this, you might still have some extraneous noise from outside coming in like the train that went by while we were listening to that just now, you were saying, Sean, that you, uh, in listening to a lot of these lately, you were struggling to completely isolate yourself from extraneous noise. And then thinking, is that on the recording or something else happening right now around me? Oh, there's been so many funny moments in me playing a bunch of environments records way more often over the past couple of weeks. Like even this morning I put on, uh, the, this track on at new hope. And a few seconds later, my daughter turns to me. I was like, dad, do you hear the birds outside? There's way more of them than I'm used to. <laughs> I was like, that's on the record. She's like, no, it's coming from outside. I was like, no, walk over here to the speakers. It's coming out of these speakers. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, earlier I was, I was playing a different environment series. The, uh, I think the cornfield in the summertime or whatever it's called. And uh, my wife came downstairs. She's like, is there a, a cricket in the basement somewhere? Like, nope, just, just environments records on the speakers. <laughs> I wasn't really familiar with this series until we did the Frankie Lane episode with John Howard and John Olson last year. And they started talking about uh, this series on that episode. If either of you recall that. I do recall that. Yeah. So I looked it up then and I was like, wow, that's right down my alley. I, I have a fascination with, with field recordings, but I don't listen to nearly enough of them. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I had a very uh, similar approach where I, I was kind of fascinated on a very uh, superficial level at the beginning. And I've always kind of meant to look into the story behind it a little more. And then these past few weeks when I finally dug in deeper, I just have found that there's so many rabbit holes to explore the further you dig into this. I was first introduced to the environment series in the same way that I feel like a lot of people were by just digging through those dollar bins and sometimes buying stuff for no other reason than the, the pure novelty of it. And there is plenty of novelty with the environment series. The packaging is always so great. This is, you know, one of the earlier environments records, so it doesn't have the, the later seventies weird sex appeal that some of these records had with like the silhouette of a woman with uh, superimposed over nature imagery. This is more of a clean cut rectangle photo of nature on the front of it. But then on the back, you have all these hilarious hype quotes to get you to buy the record. I could swear. I smell new cut grass, really great in earphones. Dawn makes getting out of bed Oh, getting out of bed in the morning a lot easier. Are these conversation is easier and brighter? Everyone loves Dawn. Are these quote from notable New Age figures of the early seventies? No, these are quotes without any claim as to who made them. And I have seen many people claim that a lot of the hype quotes on these are very likely just Irv Tybel himself pretending to be other people, because <laughs> that's the kind of guy he definitely was. <laughs> Uh, probably my favorite quote on the back of this jacket is one rather melancholy thought kept striking me. Well, when all the birds are dead of pollution and when the cities have swallowed the last lovely green woods and the population explosion, we can have earphones and our gas masks and listen to the world when it was still young and fresh. Uh, that's a quote from the Lorax. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him saying that. So Yeah. You've got the the funny concept, the funny quotes, the cool artwork, all good enough reasons to buy this record for a dollar or uh, 50 cents in my case. And then there's, you can kind of go a little further with it. You can start to learn to enjoy them as the background sounds, mood music, and study aids that they're often advertised as. And then you start to find that the more you listen to it, some of the hype quotes on the back actually are a little more accurate and make a little more sense than you might have initially thought. And then a lot of people, including myself, have taken these and started to reimagine them as more interactive music-making tools. I've used them often, especially this one, Environments 2, in various experimental DJ sets I've done, like with my band Hard Health that I've done with Trevor Coleman, who's guested on this show a couple times. I also used it during a live score for the film, The Inhuman Woman, that I did in 2016 with some friends. I've also used these a lot on a upcoming collaboration album that both of you guys are a part of called Hard Friends. Yeah. We are friends of the hard bargain. <laughs> exactly. Making weird-ass music together. So then, when you start to look into the story behind the Environment series and its creator, Irv, it becomes a kind of jumping off point for ruminations on the relationships between art, technology, capitalism, humanity, sound, and nature. I find that it also exists as a sort of fascinating snapshot of the emotional history of America in the late 60s and 70s. You get 
a picture of a nation transitioning from the hippie movement into the impending Reagan years. Yeah, the bridge from one to the other. Yep, that's the environment series. <laughs> it's, it seems so inviting in a friendly atmosphere. Who, who would have thought it would end where it did? <laughs> exactly. So the first kind of bombshell of sorts when researching the environment series is that these are not in fact, uh, raw unedited sounds as you might guess with a field recording or nature sounds record. These are in fact, highly manipulated tracks either done with hand cut splices and oftentimes with what was then cutting edge computer technology that in many ways resembles modern AI generated music and deep fake technology. Yeah, I started to get that impression when I was listening to this without having really looked up much information. I was thinking about recording technology of the time and just how clean this is. I was like, this has to be manipulated. Oh, it's it's very manipulated for sure. We'll uh, get into a little more of that later. The impression that I get is that these records are actually less about capturing nature and more about recreating an idealized version of ambient sounds for use as a tool or a sedative. And that's one of the ways that I consider this a spiritual successor to the Exotica movement, because just like that, it's not trying to accurately recreate or honor something, but more trying to recreate people's fantasy of what something is or possibly should be yeah and i think like we said with that uh, with the exotica music having that ability to transport the listener i believe this achieves something similar absolutely so for a comparison another really popular field recording record from this same year 1970 was a record called Songs of the Humpback Whale. Are either of you familiar with that dollar bin, Jim? <laughs> is, it, is that what he's listening to in The Big Lebowski right before he gets punched in the mouth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew on some level I was familiar with it. <laughs> so that record was also a big success in 1970, but the interesting comparison there is that Songs of the Humpback Whale was a record utilizing technology in order to raise awareness and help preserve natural life. That was actually, the intent was to save the humpback whale from extinction, and it was actually pretty successful in, you know, furthering this cause to help nature. Whereas Irv's goal was more to kind of bend nature to better serve people. There's one user review that tells of a man who would listen to Irv's wave sounds in his seaside apartment because opening the windows would make his wall-to-wall carpet damp. And the kind of canned, safe version of the waves was way better than the real thing. Oh. (laughs) There's also many accounts of these records being used specifically to increase productivity as well as mental health. It kind of seems to promote the idea that the ideal person of the day is one who is not only relaxed, but also someone who's a good worker. Productive and relaxed. I like it. Reagan's exactly. coming. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there's the bridge. So this is where we get into what is known as the field of psychoacoustics. Are either of you, by chance, familiar with that? I'm familiar with certain aspects of it. 
do you mean like binaural recording type things or? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different applications and fields of it, but uh, if, if you had to be put on the spot and tell someone what psychoacoustics means, what would be your, your answer? I would say it's the pseudoscience of using sound to manipulate people's minds and mood. Yeah, basically. Wikipedia describes it as the branch of psychophysics involving the scientific study of sound perception and audiology, or how humans perceive various sounds. More specifically, it is the branch of science studying the psychological responses associated with sound, including noise, speech, and music. Mm, That tracks, yeah. So Irv described psychoacoustics as an arcane science seemingly focused on band-aid fixes of airport noise and improving intelligibility of telephonic transmissions. So he was inspired to go deeper with deeper than these unimaginative applications after learning about the work of Hermann Ludwig Ferdinand von Helmholtz, who is a 19th century German scientist and philosopher who felt that natural sounds like the ocean, wind, rain, and other kind of mundane sonic occurrences could have great psychological benefits if only some means of accurate reproduction could be found. So Irv believed that this concept was an idea whose time had come thanks to recent technological advances, and he became obsessed with being the first person to fully realize this concept. He, he became obsessed with being the person to do that. Yes. He had a mission. He was a man on a mission. He knew that this idea was perfect and now was the right time. And if he didn't do it, someone else was bound to. And he was going to be damned if he let that happen. So you guys want to hear some more of those bird sounds? Yeah, let's, let's hear that now with all that in mind. Exactly. So another thing to keep in mind here is, you know, one of the superficial things you might get in a first impression is that, oh, it's just bird sounds for half an hour. But as I said, these are highly edited, painstakingly put together and can almost more accurately be looked at as a kind of natural sounds symphony. So there are subtle changes that happen throughout the whole thing. Each one is specifically designed to kind of, you know, transport the listener and make them feel a variety of different things as they're going through and to kind of subtly affect and interact with the people listening. So we're going to drop the needle a little farther down on the record and see what we think of it now.
So do you feel any different about it that time? Yeah, I feel manipulated now. Now that I'm listening <laughs> closer, I'm like, yeah, in nature, the birds aren't making sounds that frequently and that, um, like, rhythmically, I guess. Yeah, you do start to notice that the sounds seem to all be, like, perfectly embedded in sequences so that they all have separation and you can clearly hear everything. And then at times it gets busier, sometimes it gets less busy, but it's all stuff that you would, you would never pick up on just casually dropping the needle on this record after picking it out of a dollar bin. Yeah. At one point there was a cascade of morning doves when I was listening to it. And that was around the time that I started to suspect something was amiss. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's funny cause it's listed as being a specific morning in new hope in 1969 on the record. Yeah, I'm sure it's actually recorded, but then he edits it way down. It's like a best of. Yeah, that's the that's the impression I get. This isn't just like this was the best half an hour of his recording at dawn. I'm sure he was just sitting outside recording all day and then pulling out his favorite little sections from hours and hours of footage. And I don't know if this one is computer manipulated or not. This might be just strictly hand splicing, but... I think a lot of his stuff was actually pretty highly computer manipulated. Well, I suspect, jumping ahead, I suspected the other side of this LP was definitely computer manipulated. Oh yeah, the the other side is, is heavily computer manipulated. We'll get into that a little bit more, but first I'm going to give you a little bit of bio. Irving Solomon Tybell was born in Buffalo, New York on October 9th. 1938. He was considered to be a natural born salesman with an insatiable curiosity and a wide range of interests. Throughout his life, he worked in many different fields, including photography, graphic design, radio, music concrete, film, and publishing. He served in the army as a public information specialist and was stationed in Germany. During that time there, he became increasingly interested in avant-garde music and claimed to study briefly with Karl Heinz Stockhausen. I was going to say, I know, I know where this is going. <laughs> if, <laughs> if he's in Germany in that time frame. Yep, Stockhausen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so he returned to America in 1966 and set up residence in New York. Over the next few years, he rubbed shoulders with the city's creative elite. And in 1969, Irv was working on recording wave sounds near Coney Island for use in the experimental film Coming Attractions by Tony Conrad. Tony Conrad? Yep. Like... Peter, you, you want to tell people who Tony Conrad is real quick? The drone master. Exactly. Amazing. So, yeah, he's already worked with, like, two of the biggest names in modern avant-garde classical minimalism whatever you want to call it but yeah these are some legendary people that irv was was meeting up with in the 60s wow so while he was editing these wave sounds for the film he noticed that the more he listened the more he enjoyed it which was in direct contrast to the burnout and fatigue that he normally experienced hearing the same sounds on an endless loop jeremy i'm sure you know a little bit about that being more into audio engineering than the two of us Oh yeah, pretty much every 
project that I've done mixing on, I like can't stand anything about it by the end of it. Yeah, that, that seems to be the common reaction from everyone I know that's in that field. Yeah, after a few months, I can enjoy it, but yeah, you definitely get like a burnout. Yep. Too close to it. So, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, anything in, you know, too high of a dose can get old, I feel like. So it makes sense. Except the sounds of Mother Nature. Mm hmm. Or at least the highly stylized, psychologically ultimate sounds of Mother Nature. Yeah, that in particular. So this seemed to be the perfect answer to his increasing frustration with avant-garde music. Referring to experimental music, he once was quoted as saying, you come through with a technological masterpiece, but after listening to it for half an hour, there was a certain sigh of relief when the recording was over. You didn't have any inclination to go and repeat it. So he kind of was starting to obsess over this concept of still being really interested in the creation of these experimental sounds, but wanting to make something that people could actually enjoy and would just be naturally inclined to listen to over and over again, which is kind of a fascinating thought that this guy in some ways figured out how to make avant-garde music accessible and popular and make a lot of money with the record buying population of the day. Yeah, that's an accomplishment. And for sure, just take naturally existing sounds and rearranging them. Mm -hmm. And it's strange to think that his motive is like the same as Motown or, uh, yeah, like all the pop production teams trying to make something that everyone will enjoy. He's trying the same thing ultimately, just coming from a totally opposite direction. Or dimension. Yeah, just coming at it from being like a total nerd, basically. And just like, how do I do the things that I'm obsessing about and figure out how to make a lot of money doing it at the same time? It's the real American dream, you know? It probably helped that he was of an entrepreneur mindset. Yeah, absolutely. So he's he's struck with this idea, then he spends a bunch of time afterwards traveling up and down the coast, making hundreds and hundreds of recordings of wave sounds. And the problem he was coming to was none of them were able to accurately recreate the ideal sound that he had in his head. And the birth of the environment series came about when his efforts interested his friend, Louis Gerstmann, who was a prominent neuropsychologist best known for his work in speech synthesis and for co-inventing the computer portrayed as HAL 9000 in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> he he co-invented a fictional computer? Well, he, he co-invented the computer that the movie was based on, basically. Um, he was known for teaching a computer to sing a lullaby, and that was the inspiration for HAL 9000 singing in the movie. Exactly. I bet you didn't know that this was going to be tied to HAL 9000, did you? I didn't, but it all makes sense. It, you know, it really does. <laughs> so Gertman suggested to Irv that they digitalize and edit the loops with an IBM 360 computer, which is one of those giant old 60s mainframe computers that were like the size of an entire room 
And what they did was they fed a two-minute loop of wave sounds into the computer and then chopped that up into microsecond-long sections to be analyzed and synthesized into new sounds, free from any evidence of edits, repetition, human interference, or distracting dynamic shifts. The result was what they jokingly referred to as the psychologically ultimate seashore, which ended up being one of the first commercially available releases edited with a mainframe computer. Wow. Way back when, over 50 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like reading about it, it's like, I didn't know that they could do that kind of stuff at that point with computers in the sixties. Like just the, the absolute definition of cutting edge technology with this. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely surprising. So he's, he's achieved his desired result. He has the perfect wave sounds that he's been obsessing over in his head and he decides to double down on this project, he launches his own record label called Syntonic Research Incorporated. The definition of the word syntonic is a person responsive to and in harmony with their environment. So that effect is appropriate to the given situation. You want to know a gross thing about that? What's that? There is a company I found by forgetting to put research in there when I was Googling that. And it's called Syntonic Incorporated. And Mm -hmm. they specialize in taking your mobile data and selling it to the right people. Oh my God, that's so perfect. Yeah, it could be a spiritual successor to the Syntonic Research Incorporated. Mm -hmm. This is where... Yeah, the the true final use of his his projects. This is what computers have come to in... 50 years since this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Irv wasn't really sure if there was a market for his new creation. However, sales took off very quickly and he was soon presented with a lucrative distribution deal from Atlantic records in 1969. Uh, as a younger man, Irv was once quoted as saying, my ultimate objective is to make a lot of money doing something I will be happy doing. And then right after or later on in life when he was thinking back to his first success, he was also quoted as saying, my obsession had become reality and a new form of recorded sound had been born via computer. I sold the rights to environments disc one to Atlantic records and retired for a while. Mother nature had been digitalized. Tame the wild beast. Uh Uh-huh. So in 1970, he left his short retirement and decided to go, full-time with Syntonic Research Incorporated. He set up office space on the top floor of the Flatiron Building in New York City. In that same year, 1970, Environments 2 was released. The one we're listening to today. That's the one. So in a lot of ways, Environments 2 was a continuation and maybe slight refinement of the themes from Environments 1. He began to think about music this kind of music in a lot of ways is like what it can be used for. And a lot of the environments records would have two different styled tracks on each side. Um, so I don't mean to interrupt you, Sean, but so he did think of this as music. Not he wasn't like, I work in sound. I don't, I can't say that he necessarily thought of it as music. I, I only ask because I know Bruce Russell from the dead sea likes to specify that he works in sound, not music, even though things he does often take place where music also takes place. He says he works in sound. 
Mm-hmm. So I just wasn't, I wasn't sure if that kind of mindset was based off of forerunners of working in sound design. And I, I think the impression that I get is that Irv was more interested in people's relationship with the sounds that he was making and less about the medium that he was working in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was an obsession with natural sounds and creating these perfect renditions of them, but it was always brought back to this, um, people's relationship with it. Like, how are people going to feel when they hear this? What is the use of this? What, you know, why are people going to buy these records also? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's definitely into how people are affected by it. For sure. Uh, so you were saying so the sides, yeah, two tracks. Yeah. There's always one side of an environment's record that is more for contemplative sound, meditative, that kind of effect where you're supposed to really sit and zone out and, let that music kind of take over a little bit. And then the other side is more of a strictly background kind of sound where you're supposed to play it very quietly so that you easily trick your brain into thinking that this is what's happening around you. And that is what Dawn at New Hope, Pennsylvania is more like to really accurately give you the feeling that you're out in nature, hearing all these birds waking up and singing their, their morning songs to you. So now we're going to, go into the contemplative sound of tin tenabulation. Did either of you happen to look up what that word means? Nope. I did not. I, no. Tin tenabulation is basically the resonant sound of a bell. Duh, I knew that. <laughs> Didn't even have to look it up. Yeah, it's so obvious. Well, we'll be hearing a little bit of that, I suspect, in this track. All right. Track one. Tintinabulation.
That is definitely my favorite track on the record of the two tracks. Yeah. <laughs> what's your what's your favorite one minute segment of Tin Tenabulation? Do you have it narrowed down to that yet? Oh, somewhere around the thirteen minute mark. Okay, really, that makes sense. It really comes together in a yeah, it really hits its stride, huh? <laughs> yeah. The peak. You guys want to hear a couple uh, hype quotes about that track real quick? Oh, yes. I was expecting electronic music, but what I heard was totally different. Truly beautiful sound. Very calming. Helps me to sleep easier and speeds up my reading. I feel much more relaxed. <laughs> that, that didn't even sound like the same person in the within one quote. <laughs> Well, it was two different people. I could have uh, made that distinction. All right, third quote. <laughs> I imagined shapes and colors I had never thought of before. Oh, man, that sounds like me trying to sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> the whole room seemed to change as the needle tracked the first groove. Very heavy stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of these have quotes that, like, make... I'm sure teenagers think like, oh, this is like doing drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> oh, I should specify. That sounds like me trying to sound smart when I was a teenager on drugs. <laughs> That's what I meant <laughs> by that. You know, I think Irv was very aware that a lot of uh, drug users were buying and appreciating these records, which I'm sure is still the case. So he was, he was always very careful in interviews to talk about how these records were actually kind of an anti-drug thing. He, he would claim all the time that so many people who listened to these records would stop doing drugs because the sound of listening to environments records was better than any drug they'd done before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Checks out, right? That seems like a thing people would be doing in 1970. Yeah, for sure. You don't need your silly drugs. This is a greater experience than you'll ever have on those. Speaking of funny experiences while listening to environments records, I was playing this track last night while uh, playing video games stoned by myself late at night. And I was listening to it. And all of a sudden I was hearing these, these other uh, like oscillating frequencies going with it. And I was like, Oh shit, this is crazy. I haven't, I don't remember hearing this on this record before. Have I just not noticed that before? This is fucking wild. And then after a minute of, I realized that it was just the bell sounds mixed with the, uh, fan in my PlayStation, <laughs> which just synced up perfectly. <laughs> the fan kicked on. Yeah. And I was like, Oh shit, this is wild. <laughs> Well, that, that, so that's something that's worth noting that I don't know if we've really talked about yet is that the records were designed to be interactive and I think you could play them at different speeds. Yeah, that's one of the things that's fascinating about this. Going back to what I said about how I've used this for a lot of experimental DJ sets, in doing research, I unsurprisingly was far from alone on that. And these records have been sampled many 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 times over the years by for all kinds of uses um people looking to maybe just add some color to beats or tracks that they're putting together or to take sections and manipulate it into rhythms and all kinds of stuff and this track specifically was advertised as being intended to be played at any different speed that your turntable could recreate and the point of that was that it would change your perception of what the experience was ideally when you're playing this at 33 
you want to think of a large bell, almost the size of a full room. And the idea is that you're not really hearing much of the initial strike or any distracting sounds from a bell ringing, but more just hearing the slow resonating tones of the bell. And then on top of that, he specifically used bells that were tuned to a more uh, Eastern scale of music, or as he calls it on the jacket, Oriental music, which sucks. Uh, it's, it's again, uh, lots, lots of ties to uh, the racism and sketchiness of the exotica movement. It's yeah. all still there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in a Western sense, that was thought to be the acceptable term at the time and sure. No much better now. Most of us yeah. anyway, <laughs> I still hear it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going back to what you said about is this, is this music or sound and how did he think of it? This one definitely has much more musical qualities because it is tuned to a specific scale. And the idea is that it makes you go into this state of meditation or contemplation because this is a scale of music that most Americans were completely unaware of at the time. So not only are these field recordings and nature sounds kind of groundbreaking, but it's also just even even the stuff like this had an air of unfamiliarity that most people were experiencing in a totally different way in the 70s than what we would now putting this record on so the idea then with the with the changing of the speeds is that if you are bumping this up to a 45 or a 78 rpm then suddenly your perception is that it's maybe a room full of small bells instead of a giant bell and then if you slowed it down to like a 16 RPM, which was much more common on turntables back then, you would get even more of this kind of drone minimalism type meditation vibe. And let me reassure our listeners again, changing the speed of something and listening to it is not something drug users do. <laughs> not once. <laughs> not once. So the, the whole changing of the speed on the bell sound is, is specifically why I use this record a lot in some of my live sets. I actually have two copies of it because yeah, that sound, especially of changing the speed mid playback has really, really interesting effects. You know, when you, when you slow down the speed of a loop or sample, it has this real kind of heavy feeling like your whole body is slowing down with it and kind of has this spacey trippy vibe to it. So again, it's just, it's fascinating that he was already thinking ahead of those kind of elements of his music back in 1970 and the late sixties when he was creating this stuff. I have to think that the other side, I don't know if it would work as well manipulating the speed since the sounds of nature in our minds have like a set pitch or tone to them that would obviously change with the speed manipulation. Although maybe it just sounds like a totally different thing at those different speeds. Yeah, he didn't recommend that you messed with the speed on any of the like bird sounds or more natural sounds like this. Um, the wave sounds, which are also more on the contemplative side of his presentation, those are designed to be sped up or slowed down. And the other thing is that uh, there's a warning that comes with this record, that there are all kinds of low frequencies buried underneath the bell sounds that if you play too loud on a system that can't handle it could permanently damage your speakers or stereo. Oh man. Which was directly influential to the band earth when they were pioneering doom metal in the nineties. They had the, the record 
that was had the label special low frequency version or edition on it. That was a direct reference to this very track, Tintinabulation on Environments 2. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I remember that band Guitar Wolf had some kind of sticker warning on their album about it potentially damaging your speakers as well. Mm-hmm. It's an extreme album. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's another thing that I think is interesting. And also there's again, parallels to Martin Denny there is, you know, this is a guy coming from an avant-garde background and then repackaging it in this like pseudoscience hippie stuff, selling it to hippies and then later influencing more avant-garde musicians decades later. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that we can't ignore the fact that it sort of ties into the Stephen Halpern episode we did as well mm-hmm. yeah in a lot of ways Irv Tybal was kind of the real inventor of ambient music a lot of times that credit is given to brian eno but irv was doing this stuff before him and while it a lot of it doesn't have the same musicality as some of the the droney ambient music you would think of the the same uh the same kind of creative energy is there it's a lot of the same process going into it and some of the same thoughts of how the music is supposed to be or how the sounds are supposed to be listened to and enjoyed. I just want to say hi to the indie documentarian of the future who finds a little known field recording artist from 1932 who actually was doing this first. Are you talking about like (laughs) Alan Lomax? Oh, that's a good point too. Yeah, Irv didn't claim to be the first person to make this kind of music, but he was the first person to take these field recording sounds and then manipulate them into a new product, Yeah, which is why he billed it as these uh, psychoacoustic, psychologically ultimate, because he wanted to differentiate that these were supposedly a higher form of art than everything everyone else was doing. Are we going to mention that he's also the godfather of the deep fake? <laughs> I did kind of mention that already, actually. No, you didn't go into the altered Nixon recordings. There, There is that, too. You want to tell people about the altered Nixon recordings real quick? Yeah. In 1973, Irv released, it was labeled a novelty single, but he took some Nixon speeches talking about Watergate and chopped them all up to make it sound as though Nixon were admitting fully to everything he did wrong and taking full responsibility for it. And there's also like an interesting kind of echo going on to it too, I listen, or noticed. Mm-hmm. I had prior knowledge of the Watergate break-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read a little bit about that in... It seems like Irv was not necessarily doing that so much of a protest act, as you might assume, but more to prove how much could be done with tape editing than people were aware of at that point. And interestingly enough, after releasing the altered Nixon recordings, he frequently was invited as an expert witness in court cases involving audio files. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's gnarly he did that 48 years ago, and people still can't seem to understand that audio can just be easily manipulated, especially nowadays. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he was splicing with a razor. 
(laughs) (laughs) So there's a quote from uh, Mike Powell who wrote a really good article about Irv on Pitchfork that I wanted to read real quick. Behind environments, hippie-ish premise that we are all biologically wired to thrive on the heartbeat of the earth were coarser, more modern notions. By Tybel's own admission, the series had been conceived not as a way to reconnect with the world, but to shut it out. Everything about its packaging and presentation was haunted by the task of coping, of stabilizing in unstable situations, of squeaking through until the next day. The nature we hear in environments isn't only altered, but idealized, scrubbed free of machines, people, and other hassles of civilization. It's funny. Just earlier today, before I even checked the album that we're listening to now out, I took my Zoom recorder, my h4n pro out into the streets of kalamazoo and was recording sounds making field recordings but when i came back home and listened to them it was lots of cars that were making unwanted appearances on there and you know these Mm -hmm. then i listened to this and it's so perfect scrubbed clean of the machinations of the modern world yeah and there's like on the jackets it'll talk about how part of the goal of this is to preserve nature that's so quickly disappearing because many of the locations where he recorded these original files before editing are places that either don't exist anymore on environments. One, there's recording from an aviary at a zoo that no longer exists. Uh, the, the spot that he recorded the dawn at new hope was, you know, a few years later turned into an apartment complex. So he presented it as that angle yet in actuality, there wasn't really as much of an effort to present these as real like natural documents so it's like this weird duality going on the whole time that's fascinating yeah well sean i'm struggling to think of what you could have done for a spotify playlist for this episode (laughs) you know i was struggling on that as well there was a few different angles i could go that you know there's obviously a lot of other field recording and nature sounds records out there many of them are not on spotify there's more pop oriented songs that utilize field recording elements. We talked about that on the Stevie wonder episode, but then I thought about how one of the things that Irv talked about a lot later on in his career was that he was really excited about advancements in technology related to home audio. He was uh, a big proponent of quadraphonic sound. The environment series were some of the first commercially available quadraphonic recordings. And he was really interested in, getting the best possible sound to make these records really work. Uh, he wrote angry letters to people sometimes or companies that he found were playing environments records without the proper fidelity. So one of the things that he was recommending for people to do around the time of the late seventies is that record players that could stack and queue up records were much more common at that point. So you could buy the entire environment series and then arrange them one after the other to automatically play after the other one ended so that you could have hours and hours of uninterrupted environments. So what I did with the playlist, since the entire environment series is available on Spotify and also via an app, thanks to numero group is I've arranged every environments recording in a sort of pleasing flow that takes you through just about 14 hours of background sounds starting at dawn at new hope pa and ending with the ultimate heartbeat one thing that's important to know when you're listening to these environments records is that they are pretty much all intended to be listened to at very low volumes 
The thing I've actually found personally is that when you listen to these records too loud, they're very unnerving and kind of anxiety inducing because when you hear these natural sounds that your brain is used to hearing in certain settings, when they're louder than you've ever heard them before, it just sounds really weird. And then that whole element of this being like robotic music seems to take over and scare you. But when it's quiet, you just forget that it's on. I've had these records on and thought, oh, I need to put a record on. Oh, wait, there is a record still on, you know? (laughs) Well, Jeremy, Peter, any final thoughts before we go out on a little more tintinabulation? Well, I would like to, first of all, remind our listeners that you can follow us on both Instagram and Facebook. You'll find us on Instagram at I'd Buy That Podcast. We post pretty regularly about the upcoming episodes as well as these playlists that Sean just mentioned and Facebook as well. You can find us on there and you can also get involved with our I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group where you can post about bargain bin finds of your own. So look that up on Facebook. I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group. And I wanted to ask Jeremy who the 1932 field recording artist was that he was talking about oh i was just making up a fictional one in like the way an indie director or documentarian always finds like some obscure unknown person who was doing it before you know oh i see i thought that you had someone in (laughs) mind (laughs) no just mocking our modern times (laughs) well jeremy do you have any final thoughts to go with it i i have really mixed feelings on all this now because sure it's manipulated and being put as a product but i'm reminded of that like picasso quote that's something to the effect of art is telling a lie to reveal the truth And it makes me wonder if the lie he's presenting of nature is revealing the truth of what we're losing in these times. Yeah. I mean, the more I research them, the more I research this, the more I was just struck with the impression that this is a really complicated thing and a complicated person. It would be unfair to try and present this from one angle. I mean, you could easily paint Irv as just a snake oil salesman who was faking pseudoscience and getting rich off of it. You could present him as like a truly passionate person who was obsessed with sound and just found a commonality with the rest of the world through that. There's elements of it being prepackaged and the, you know, insidious usage of it at times. But then it's just as possible that someone could listen to this and feel inspired to experience nature or maybe rethink the way they're interacting with the world around them via sound or otherwise. There's just so many ways you could go with this. Well, yeah, and going back to what I said at the very beginning about, I kind of feel with noise music, avant-garde music, or field recordings or rearranged natural sounds, that, that they do give that sense of kind of shutting out the rest of the world, giving yourself a moment to pause and take things in without all that 
extraneous input that we're dealing with increasingly more and more so as we move forward here. Absolutely. You can exist outside of the hustle and bustle of the world for a little bit. And that's, <laughs> it's, it's a nice feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely encourage people to check out not only the playlist, but also the Numero Group app. Hearing these, especially in a completely sterile way without, you know, any imperfections from a vinyl or cassette that you might have. It's an interesting experience to have that, uh, both for putting on at home in the background or also to put on headphones and go for a walk and just see how it changes your perception of your surroundings with different environments playing. There's a lot to explore here. Well, I've got just a couple quick final thoughts here. For one thing, I think, you know, these sound collages, music, whatever you want to call it, I think they exist as a kind of interesting, perfect middle ground between like John Cage's theories about how all of your surroundings could be music and talking about how experiencing traffic sounds in New York was better than any symphony ever written. And then there's also the pianist Eric Satie, who was famous for his furniture music and argued that there should be times when music disappears seamlessly into our surroundings and should not be paid attention to directly. And I feel like Irv was in a lot of ways intentionally or maybe unintentionally creating the perfect middle ground between those two ideas. And that's, that's part of the, the lasting impact of, of the work that he created. Also the sounds of the humpback whale that we mentioned earlier, parts of that were included on Carl Sagan's golden record that was shot into space with the Voyager craft in 1977. Irv Tybel claims that the psychological ultimate ocean was also included on that disc, but so far NASA has not confirmed <laughs> or denied that claim. I'm inclined to think that he might've been making that up. It's an unlisted hidden track. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I have one quote from Irv. I'd like to read for you guys it says you take the 10th of a second of an idea and suddenly it's 10 years later. Tybel said on one of his tapes, then he laughs. Then suddenly it's 30 years later and you have diabetes, then cancer. And you're so mistrustful of doctors that your friends say you've tried to treat yourself with diets, plums, fruits, healthy things, and none of it works but at least you spent the time with your family, your camera, your daughters, taking pictures, documenting your secret favorite subject, people. Ooh. Mm. Nice twist at the end there, Sean, Dad. Oh, thanks. All right, we're going to go out on a little farther down the track, tabulation, and uh, as a special treat, I'll do a little manipulation of the speed settings for everyone so they get an example of what that could sound like on your home table. Thanks for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Jamie Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Here's the track.
Thank you.